thank you for those who could be with us this morning as we are on our first Sunday that we're able to gather together here of the new year. We thank you for what that means and what that symbolizes. We thank you for your word, that as we go through each year, year after year after year, and everything around us changes, as, as Elder Skibbenus mentioned a few minutes ago, things we never thought we'd see in our country happen are happening right now, right before our very eyes. Lord, we thank you that you never change. Your word never changes. You are our rock. You are our fortress that we can run to in times of danger. And boy, are we in danger now. So Lord, we run to you at this time. We run to your word, to your truth, to your power, to your strength. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we gather here on the first Sunday of 2021 that we, that we can gather anyways, the concept of time is on everyone's minds. It's the first Sunday we're able to be back together again uh, in 2021. And these are the questions that are on everybody's minds. How long will the pandemic last? How much longer? When will things start to go back to normal this year? You got all kinds of opinions on that. Everybody's going back and forth on that. When we think of time, we think of it in terms of human understanding. Minutes, days, weeks, months, years. But as believers in Jesus, we're also given the gift of being able to understand how time works with God. I mentioned this on Christmas Eve, that the way that God operates is both within and outside of human time. They're both very different. The way, they're both very different. The way that he works inside and outside of human time are very different. Scripture tells us that a day is like a thousand years with God, and a thousand years is like a day. We also have been given the gift of being able to combine that truth with the fact that God has his perfect plan, and everything he wants to happen will happen according to that plan. No sooner, no later. Everything will happen in his perfect timing. That was the case with the arrival of the Messiah, like we talked about on Christmas Eve. And that's the case with everything that happens in our lives. But as we all know, here's the thing, waiting on God's timing is a tricky thing, right? I'm not speaking into a vacuum here. Waiting on God's timing is a very, very tricky thing. Why? Here's why. Because it goes against everything else that's inside of us and everything else we're hearing from everyone else. Amen? All right. One of these messages is, you want it, you take it. Another one is, get it today because you don't know if it'll be here tomorrow. It may be one of the most powerful tools businesses that sell things use that is very effective is one day only sale, right? One day, we heard a lot of these messages just a month ago in the full swing of the holiday buying season. And I'm sure that when we look back on a lot of the foolish impulse buys we may have made in the past, do you think, do you think to yourself, why on earth did I buy this? I haven't used this in years. Why did I buy it? It was directly connected to getting caught up in these advertisements of limited time. One day only. Get it now, because it may not be here tomorrow. 
It seems like one of the most integral parts of who we are as humans is connected to the sense of entitlement. If we aren't getting something we want, what do we do? We force it to happen, right? If we're not getting something we want, we try to force it to happen. Because after all, we deserve it. Waiting on God's timing forces us to let go of that mindset. Just take it and put it over there. To let go of that mindset and place our mindset on entrusting all of these things to God's determination and God's timing. It can be both frustrating to us and our human desires, but you want to know something? It's also the best place we could possibly be in waiting on God's determination and God's timing. There's a classic example in the Bible of leapfrogging God's timing and then forcing something to happen the way the person wanted and then the long-term consequences of that decision. That classic example deals with a man named Abram and his wife Sarai. Way back in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, we get a pretty good look and a man named Abram, and at his journey of faith in the one true God. If you look at all of Scripture, you'll see that when God called Abram, who would later be renamed to Abraham, to put his faith in God, Abram was thoroughly pagan at the time. He was living in a, in a town called Ur of the Chaldeans, and he was worshiping the moon god and other ancestral deities in the Mesopotamian city of Ur. He did not know God. He did not know about God. He didn't know God. So when God called him to leave his father's household and leave his land and go somewhere that he had no clue where he was going, that, that in and of itself took an extreme amount of trust in God. God. God called Abram to leave his family, his inheritance, and his homeland to go settle in a place he was not told yet. That in and of itself was a huge leap of faith for God, or for Abram. But God was about to take it one step further than that. You see, Abram and Sarai were already almost 100 years old, and they had no children. In fact, Abram was all set to leave all of his valuables to a man named Eliezer, his head servant. But God told Abram that God would give him a son. A miraculous claim, <laughs> just in and of itself, a miraculous claim. Knowing that both Abram and Sarai's bi biological clocks were well past that possibility, right? Well past it. Because of this human impossibility, we see Abram struggling with this prophecy that God would give him a child. Several times, actually, that he's wrestling with this. But in our passage this morning, Abram takes his struggles with believing God's prophecy about giving him a biological son and makes a decision that will end up having ramifications for thousands of years after that, that we're still dealing with today. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Genesis chapter 16. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Genesis chapter 16 or look it up on a Bible app on your smartphone. Genesis chapter 16, we're going to start with the first few verses here. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, 
The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. We'll stop there for now. Now, contrary to popular belief, this presentation of Hagar by Sarai to Abram in order to bear children itself, that presentation of it itself, was not necessarily seen as disobedience to God in human understanding. It was actually quite common practice in the ancient Near East that if a wife could not bear children for her husband, she could give him a concubine as a surrogate mother. Any children that were then born could legally become the heir of that father. The difference between a concubine and a wife, perhaps you've heard those terms in scripture, but you don't really know what the difference is between them or what they are. But the difference between a concubine and a wife was that the wife enjoyed higher status in society because she brought a dowry into the marriage and a concubine could not. That's the main difference between a concubine and a wife. The wife brought a dowry into the marriage, the concubine did not. Since Hagar was a servant girl and probably didn't have a penny to her name, she would not have a, do a dowry or goods and livestock the bride brings into the marriage to cement the relationship between the two arranging families. Therefore, under Sarai and Abram's arrangement, Hagar would be Abram's concubine and not technically his wife, even though he was, she was legally married to him as his concubine. These roles will play into what happens later. At this point, while polygamy was not seen as against, as against the ancient culture or even against the law yet, it was generally not practiced by commoners because it was not economically smart. Think about it. More women bearing more children meant what? There were more mouths to feed, right? At the same time, taking a concubine was not seen as polygamy anyways by culture, so Abram was not breaking any cultural laws here. In addition, while not right, serving girls were seen in the ancient world as not really having their own identity, but being legal extensions of their owners. Again, not right, but that's just the way it was in that culture. If the owner could not have any children for any reason, their serving girl could take the surrogate mother place. Because of this, Hagar could legally take Sarai's place as Abram's heir bearer. So this is all about legality and leaving an inheritance to somebody, having a legal heir. In other words, Abram was not doing anything culturally or even legally wrong in this time period by taking Hagar as his concubine. And remember, this was hundreds of years before Moses wrote the book of Genesis, which solidified God's blueprint for marriage between being, be, be, being between one man and one woman. God had already established that back in Genesis 1, but we don't know how much Abram knew about that at this point. That doesn't change what God had established back in Genesis 1. That was still true, that God's blueprint that he established at the beginning of time was marriage between one man and one woman. But again, we don't know how much Abram himself knew about that living in the Mesopotamian city of Ur. 
Abram may have known, he may have, but this was even hundreds of years before God gave the law to Moses. Spelling it out, establishing that blueprint for his people. So it probably just seemed natural to both Sarai and Abram, hey, everybody else in the culture is doing it. It's a legal way of getting an heir. So they see it as a means of a solution to their problem. But here's the thing. But, right? But, here's the thing. It was the motivation behind what they were doing that made it wrong in God's eyes. Again, we don't know how much Abram knew about what God established at the point of creation. But Abram knew that what he was doing was wrong. It was the motivation behind what they were doing that made it wrong. There are a lot of things that are culturally and even legally okay for us to do as Christians, right? But what we need to examine is what our motivation is in doing that. Even though they're culturally and legally okay, that doesn't make it okay in God's eyes. Are you doing things to distract you from what you know God wants you to be doing? Are you using things to take the place of God and who he is in your life? Are you even perhaps doing things to avoid or run away from God and how he wants you to live? Even though Abram didn't do anything culturally or legally wrong, it was his motivation behind what he did that made it wrong. What was the problem? The problem was that Abram and Sarai were trying to accomplish what God had promised to them through their own strength, through their own resources, their own intelligence, and most important to our discussion, their own timing. They said, time's up, God. I don't see anything happening, so I'm going to force it to happen my way. Abram still did not see Sarai getting pregnant, and now she was well past childbearing years. In Abram's mind, there was obviously no way God was going to be able to circumvent that glaring obstacle. How is an almost 100-year-old person going to become pregnant? It is not possible. Absolutely not possible. Abram was probably thinking to himself, sure, I could maybe see God allowing my wife to start having children, but as difficult as it was to see God doing that, there is no way he's going to be able to make a woman past her childbearing years to get pregnant. There's no way. So as Abram is famous for doing in the past, he makes things happen the only way he can see them happening. You see, that's the problem. Abram is only focusing on making things happen the way that he can only see them happening in human terms. When you go back and read Abram's story, starting in Genesis 12, you see that he's already done this with the Egyptian pharaoh and taking forever and leaving his father's family in the first place. Again, on the surface, it appears like Abram has done nothing wrong. In Abram's mind, all that God had told him at that point was that his heir would be his very own biological child. God had said nothing yet about the heir being Sarai's child, too, at this point. But here's the thing. While the word that God uses to describe the heir's relation to Abram is simply body in the English and could mean womb or belly and could be used that Abram did not know the heir was to come from Sarai's womb, the word could also be used simply to describe the source of procreation. In other words, coming from Abram. 
Abram was a smart guy. And Abram knows what God has said to him. Perhaps a little too well. Perhaps a little too well. This is what we do all the time, too. This is not, Abram was not some weirdo that did stuff that we don't do on a daily basis. We can imagine Abram listening to his wife's offer and analyzing what God said and what God didn't say and taking it apart and looking at all the angles, right? This is something we do all the time. Abram was not doing anything different from anything we do on a daily basis. And finally, after mentally going back and forth with all the possibilities, we can imagine Abram saying, well, God didn't necessarily make it clear that my child would come from you, and this seems like the only way we can make God's promises work. But even if God did not make it clear Abram's child would come from Sarai, what did he say? When God first called Abram out of the city of Ur of the Chaldeans, he said, I will make of you a great nation. That's what he says to Abram. This was supposed to be God giving Abram his descendants. Do you see that? I will make you a great nation. If Abram was going to have any descendants, they were going to come from who? From God. I will make of you a great nation. In Genesis 15, 3, Abram says, Since you haven't, since you haven't given me any children, the head of the household will be my heir. Since you have not given me any children, the head of my household will be my heir. It's clear, abundantly clear from that statement that Abram knew it was supposed to be God giving him a child, which is why he questioned God in the first place. So Abram knew that it was God who was supposed to be the one doing the giving and not the other way around. Not him trying to force things to happen the way he thought they were going to happen. When someone tells you that you're getting a birthday present, your birthday's coming up and they say, hey, guess what? You're getting a birthday present. You don't constantly badger them about when you're actually going to get it, right? Am I going to get it yet? Am I going to get it? Do you have it yet? Did you buy it yet? When are you going to give it to me? We don't keep badgering them about it, right? We wait until they give it to us. They say, I'm going to give you a birthday present. We just take them at their word and say, eventually they're going to give it to me. I mean, maybe there's some of you here who do that. I don't know. <laughs> but usually think to yourself, I kn that person said to me, unless it's somebody who's completely unreliable, but you don't think to yourself, that person said they're going to give me a birthday present, but there is no way that person is going to be able to give me the present they promised to me. That doesn't really go through your mind, right? You might think to yourself, I'm curious as to see how they are going to do that. But you don't think to yourself, there's no way that person is going to give me that gift. You, you wait and see. You wait until that person gives you that present, right? God straight up promised that he would give Abram a child. And if it's God making the promises, is he, is he unreliable about that? No. He's always going to make good on that. And God straight up promised that he would give Abram a child. Then Abram refused to continue to wait for that present. 
but rather tried to do God's work for him. God did create us with brains, and God did create us with the ability to use them. But sometimes that is what can get us into the most trouble, right? Sometimes that is what can get us into the most trouble. When we're faced with an impossible situation, what is the first reflex we have? Try to figure it out yourself, right? Start analyzing that situation from every angle and stay up all night and think of every possibility and how anything we can do will affect the situation and worry ourselves sick about making something, anything, work. Let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters. When has God ever told us to do that? When has he ever told us to do that? In fact, this is what God tells us to do. Psalm 37, 7. Be still. Knock it off and take a deep breath. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. All we need to do is be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for Him to act. The word used there for wait means to wait longingly. And the definition for longingly is waiting with a strong, persistent desire or craving, especially for something unattainable or distant. You think to yourself, I don't see how this is going to work out at all. But I'm going to wait on God. And I know he's going to be the one to work everything out. When we stop trusting that God will work things out for what he knows is best, and are not being still before the Lord and longingly waiting on him, but rather seeking to make things happen the only way that we in our human understanding see them happening, we a lot of the time end up with what? More trouble on our hands than when we first started. Waiting on God may be harder than whatever you've come up with. Waiting on God may be harder than your solution, but it will always, always, always be infinitely better for you. Always. So don't be discouraged like Abram was at the seeming lack of God's inactivity or seeming lack of God's activity. Be renewed by what he says in scripture from the book of Psalms in waiting upon the Lord. Be renewed by that and be renewed by Jesus promising that God will take care of your needs. And be, be renewed by Paul encouraging his readers that this present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory awaiting us as believers in Jesus. Getting back to our story, though. Abram chooses to listen to his wife and justify it in his mind and basically says to God, God, you've had enough time give me a child. Time's up, and I'm tired of waiting. 
And just like we have often dealt with when we take matters into our own hands, what ends up happening? Abram gets more than he bargained for. Verse 4. Second part of verse 4. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. When Sarai saw that Hagar had received, Hagar was despised in Sarai's sight. Well, what do you know? Things start getting more complicated for Abram all of a sudden, right out of the gate. Remember what I mentioned before, that wives enjoyed a higher status than concubines. Well, here's where the tables start turning. A woman's honor in the ancient Near East stemmed from her ability to have lots of children for her husband. Who now has more honor according to this culture now, though? Hagar. Hagar now has more honor. Whereas Hagar was inferior in social status to Sarai before, she now has something that Sarai doesn't and is now lording it over Sarai. See the complications that are arising all of a sudden? Some people can be downright cruel, can't they be? We live in a broken world. Some people can be downright cruel. They know how to cut to the bone with their words. But what was probably now happening was that Hagar was being cruel to Sarai because Hagar, because Hagar could have children, but Sarai could not. That must have hurt Sarai. Let's just think about it. That must have hurt. That's what leads us to verse 5. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. <laughs> it was her idea, wasn't it? <laughs> May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now there's marital problems. What happens when things don't end up working out the way that you planned them? The blame game, right? It's the other person's fault. Always the other person's fault. We see here family tension, strain, even more, with Sarai now blaming Abram for taking her offer. Just because I said it didn't mean you had to take it, you numbskull. We could have seen that coming a mile away, couldn't we have? Uh, I don't think this is a good idea, Abram. I don't think this is a good idea. What started out as a team effort has now become outright family strife. Two women, one carrying Abram's child and the other Abram's wife, now absolutely hate each other. And Abram is caught in the middle of it. If a solution is made by human standards, it only leads to having to come up with more human solutions to solve the increasing number of problems, right? We see here Abram's great idea, verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. He basically says, you do what you want to do. I'm not going to be in the middle of it. You take care of it. And then we see what comes out of that. So Sarai treated her harshly, and Hagar fled from her presence. Abram's great idea out of all of this is to say, is to not do anything about it and say, your problem, you figure it out. We see what happens after that. Things just keep getting better and better, right? 
exactly the way that Abram wants them to turn out, right? Not at all. Verses 7 through the beginning of 8. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on her way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where are you? Where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. If we assume that Abram is back at Hebron, which is a pretty fair assumption because God meets Abram again later on in chapter 18 in Hebron, then the road to Shur would have been laid southwest of Hebron as seen on maps of this area. You can look it up in the back of your Bible. Because we know from Genesis chapter one verse, or chapter 16, verse 1, that Hagar is Egyptian, she may have been heading back to Egypt down that road or at the very least down a route she already somewhat knew. In any case, we read that the Lord's messenger, or the angel of the Lord, comes to Hagar and asks her two questions. Where have you come from, and where are you going? I think this could be both two, a directional question, but also something philosophical about them too. Hagar did not ask to be given to Abram, much less be impregnated by him. She probably had no idea who she was supposed to be. She used to be Sarai's serving girl, then she became Abram's concubine, and now she's run away, so she's neither at the moment. She doesn't know who she is. Hagar responds with this. I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. She doesn't really answer the angel's second question of where are you going, probably because she didn't really know the answer to that. So the angel answers both of these questions for her in verse 9. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her authority. That's tough. That's tough for us to read. That's very tough. Where she was going now was back to Sarai, according to this angel, no matter how difficult that would be. Sometimes God tells us to do things that we know are not going to be comfortable we know are going to be tough, and we know they're going to be painful. But we know his plan is perfect, and if you sit down and think about it, as tough as it is to swallow, it's not our place to question where we are in life and to trust God with it, only for us to do what God wants us to do in faith. And that's oftentimes a hard pill to swallow. This command comes with a promise to Hagar, though, verses 10 through 11. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. God is just. It wasn't Hagar's fault that she was given to Abram to be his concubine. And it wasn't Hagar's fault that she got pregnant with his child. It was her fault for disrespecting Sarai, but not her fault that Abram wasn't man enough to work out the tension between them and let Sarai mistreat her. So God gives Hagar a prophetic promise. Yes, he tells her to go back to a very difficult situation, but in that very difficult situation, he gives her a prophetic promise, somewhat similar to the one he made to Abram. Because this conception was wrought in mankind's version of wisdom, though, 
there will be consequences for this child, Ishmael, verse 12. He will be a wild donkey of a man. I think some of us know some of these types of people, right? His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Somebody who's just constantly picking fights with other people. That doesn't sound like the kind of guy I want to hang out with, right? Mostly because I probably wouldn't survive to tell of it. Uh, one wrong word, even said jokingly, would probably land me at the very least without any more teeth. You'll find out more about what happens to Ishmael as you, as you read in Scripture. But for now, in verses 13 through 14, And she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roy, or a God who sees. For she said, Have I... Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Now here's something cool. Ishmael, or Yishmael, is a combination of the Hebrew words Shama, or Her, and El, or God. So the name Ishmael means God hears. Right? That's what that name means. God hears. God heard about Hagar's mistreatment. Something Abram and Sarai would be rebuked by when Hagar names her son that name, and every time they hear it afterwards, they would end up be, being reminded of what they did. At the same time, how Hagar refers to God is El Roy, or the God who sees. We have a treasure trove of theology here in these two simple names. I'm not going to go through all of it, but God sees and hears everything. That's what it can all be boiled down to. God sees and hears everything. God both sees when we are sinning, and God hears our cries for relief in the middle of the night. It goes both ways. God both hears our lies and sees our bouts of depression. He will discipline, but he will also provide. And he will also be our strength. We, are, we end our passage with verses 15 through 16. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Hagar does end up returning to Abram and Sarai, a testament to her own faith. And bears a son to Abram named Ishmael. This account is filled with a very human story, isn't it? Something that you might see on one of those dysfunctional talk, daily talk shows. It's a very human story. A man's lack of complete trust in God led to family tension and pain and bore consequences that we are still experiencing today. And here's why. We read in Psalm 83 that the Ishmaelites are a people group that is bent on destroying the nation Israel. And in addition, the oldest existing biography of Muhammad, the founder of Islam, written about 770 AD, claims that he is from the line of Ishmael. And Muslims claim that Ishmael, not Isaac, was God's chosen son for Abraham. See how things get distorted and twisted around? But here's the, here's the big question. How long have the Jewish people been at war with the Muslim people and vice versa? ever since that moment that Ishmael was born, right? One act 
of unbelief in God's fulfillment of his promises ended up leading to thousands of years of bloodshed and heartache all across the world between God's chosen people and the descendants of Ishmael. Our actions do matter. Trying to force things the way that we think they should happen matters. There are consequences. Whether or not you wait on the Lord for his provision, his wisdom, and his timing matters. If you've been trying to figure out a solution to your problem on your own, let it go. I'm giving you an excuse and rather a reason to let it go. Because if you keep trying to struggle with it and wrestle with it and trying to come up with a human solution on your own, you will always end up with more trouble than when you first started. Let it go. Surrender it to God. Give it to Him. Wait on Him for a solution for your impossible situation. Psalm 55.22 says, Give your burdens to the Lord, and He will take care of you. Take that promise to the bank. Give your burdens to the Lord, and He will take care of you. He will not permit the godly to slip and fall. Let it go. There is so much truth in just that one verse right there. So much truth. Give your burdens and your problems and your impossible situations to God, and He will take care of you. That is a promise. 1 Peter 5, 7 echoes this. Give all. It doesn't matter how little you think it is. It doesn't matter how big you think it is. Give all your worries and cares to God, for He cares about you. Give them all to Him. One, 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 if you go back to the original Greek, when that, this word give, it's this, because um, you'll read in another translation, it's cast all your, all your worries and your cares, right? You read that in different versions. It's this idea of just taking it and throwing it as hard as you can at God and on God. Getting it away from you as quickly and as hard as possible. And getting it on him as quickly and hard as possible cast, throw, chuck all your worries and cares to him for he cares about you. God cares about what you're going through and he will put the pieces together. He is a loving God who is intimately connected to everything we're going through. You're not going through it. You're not going through your impossible situation on your own. The enemy is lying to you and deceiving you and into you thinking that you are going through it on your own and that you do need to figure it all out on your own. That is a lie. You are not going through it on your own. God is going to help you figure out something. God is going to make something happen. It's going to be led by God. If it looks like you are forcing something to happen that's not being led by God and his orchestration, put the brakes on. The looks, if you're looking at your situation and you're thinking to yourself, ah, this doesn't feel quite right. This doesn't feel like it's being led by God. Stop right there and go no further. Give it to God, and then through the Holy Spirit's power, wait patiently on Him. Don't lose heart, but patiently in faith rely on God to direct you, help you, provide for you, 
and embolden you. You are God's child. Sometimes we forget that. You are God's child. This doesn't just mean that you get eternal life with him after this life. That's priceless. It doesn't just mean that, though. What this also means is that we get all of God now, too. He's caring for us. He's watching over us. He's providing what we need. He's comforting us when things aren't working out the way we had hoped. He has got a perfect plan for each of us, and he has a purpose for each of us. And if you need wisdom on how to handle a certain situation, don't fall into the trap and don't listen to the lies of the enemy of only utilizing your limited human understanding to address it. The Apostle James tells us outright, if you need wisdom, if you don't know what to do, don't try to figure it out on your own, with your own limited human understanding. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God for it. He will give it to you. There's another promise. He will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. He wants you to ask him. If you need wisdom to know how to deal with an impossible situation, don't figure it out all on your own. Ask God to give you the wisdom to handle it, to know what to do with it, and he will do it. He will give you the wisdom. God will give you all the wisdom that you need. God will give you the answers that you need. God will provide what you need in an impossible situation. God will take your worries, your fears, and anxieties, and he will take them and he will put them on himself and he will replace all of that in your heart with his peace. Trust him and his timing and what he deems best. He is our father and he will take care of us. So as we head into this new year, that no doubt will be filled with more challenges. Hate to break it to you. Will no doubt be filled with more challenges. Let us rely completely on God's wisdom, God's strength, and God's provision. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this encouraging passage. It's a hard passage to read through, but we, we thank you for the encouragement that it can give to us of not relying on our own limited human understanding and trying to force things to happen the only way that we see them happening. But Lord, letting them go, placing them in your hands, knowing that you, you know way more about everything that's going on than we possibly could, and you know what's coming down the road, and you know what the consequences of what, we're, what we may do Will, will, will be. So Lord, I pray that we would avoid all of that and we will let go of what we're wrestling with and leave it fully in your hands and know that you will take care of it. You will put the pieces together. You will provide what's needed and you will give us the wisdom that's needed. I pray that you take all of that as we give it all up to you and that you replace it with the peace that surpasses all human understanding and guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.